So let's start then with um, what's your? Because you're a an is it an idealist? I'm not a philosopher. Yeah, I would be a dual aspect yeah. idealist. So uh, I basically would say that all is mind or all is contingent upon mind. Uh, I don't think there are two substances. I just would argue all is mind. Consciousness is fundamental and all is contingent upon that. Mm-hmm. Okay, so how do you think then the... Um, because the common idea in modern science is that the brain produces consciousness and we can see that by... Um, when we damage the brain, you damage or restrict consciousness. Uh, we can alter the effects of drugs with drugs on the on the um, on consciousness by changing the way the brain works, um, and all this is used as evidence of emergence, which I kind of can see as is evidence of either emergence or you know you change a radio receiver, you change the output of it. So right. So this this relates to my next video. Maybe I'll have out probably in a week. Uh, the first thing we need to do is we need to distinguish between two things. Uh, when people are talking about brain damage, they're not actually talking about damaging consciousness per se. Uh, they're, t- they're damaging aspects, what I would call the soul. Now, the word soul is thrown around a lot of times to mean various different things. If you talk to philosophers, it tends to mean something different than what theologians mean when they say the word soul. I define soul as a theologian would, and it's like, uh, so when you hear a theologian talk about soul building theodicies, they're using it kind of in this fashion. So your soul in that definition, it's your personality, your thoughts, memories, dreams, emotions, goals, all of this stuff that makes you, you, all the information of you is your soul. Philosophers like J.P. Moreland, when they mean soul, they mean there's like some sort of immaterial substance that is able to produce consciousness. And I don't like that at all. I don't, that's not my view whatsoever. So I define soul as like a theologian would do it. It's your personality, it's your dreams, thoughts, all of this is built up over time. Your soul evolves over time. It's malleable. You can lose memories. You can, your thoughts can change. Your personality is different than it was like 10 years ago. So then I say, that's the soul. And I say, behind everyone's soul, there's a mind. So it's what consciousness is. You're a self-aware mind and to be conscious. So you're a conscious mind building a soul. When we get to aspects of brain damage, they always seem to be damaging aspects of the the soul. Like you can lose parts of your personality. They can change from frontotemporal disorder. Uh, You can have lose memories from brain damage. That's perfectly consistent with my view. In fact, when materialists or physicalists bring up brain damage, I don't know they fully understand the dualist, even the substance dualist position or the idealist position because everyone accepts brain damage will damage aspects of you, mainly your soul, as I define it. Uh, It's not that you're damaging what consciousness is. Consciousness seems to be something other entirely. But I fully acknowledge that the brain is used by the mind for building a soul, for building up these aspects of you. It's malleable, it can be damaged, it can, you know, be it will be changed over time. And so that's what brain damage really hits on. It doesn't really talk about the underlying aspect of just namely consciousness. Hmm. Um one of the one of your your the first modern video on um the relationship to neuroscience and, and consciousness um was posted in one of the groups and I saw a comment that made me made me think um, they were talking about, you mentioned in the video that there's no evidence of, um, you can't kind of, um, 
probe or uh, apply electrical stimuli to a part of the brain and affect the whole personality. The will, I would say. The, the will. will or the conscious mind. Okay, that that would make more sense then, because they, they were saying essentially, well, um, we can because of things like, uh, I can't remember what it's called, um, electroshock therapy and things like that, where they have changed the personality of people. But if, if we're talking about the will and the, the, the state of being, then yes, that would still remain. I mean, there was a study that came out recently. Uh, let me see if I can pull it up here really quickly. I don't know if I can, but basically... Uh, that's not it. Uh, so basically there was um, a study done and I'll mention it in part three, which will come out in August. Uh, but what they did is they tried, they applied electrostimulation to parts of the brain. And when they did this, people felt strong desires to act or do something like they were able to basically simulate desires in the brain. So just by, uh, stimulation to parts of the brain, I believe it was, um, the right, uh, I forget it. I need to pull the study up again, but I mean, it would be hard for me. It's hard for me to actually remember, but if you give me a minute while I'm talking, I can probably That's fine. pull it up. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So they were creating these very strong desires in people to act. But I, uh, from going over the study with a neuroscientist, who's a friend of mine, I mean, he basically told me that they're overestimating a lot of their own research in a lot of ways. They're not controlling the will. I mean, I could take a feather and I could touch your arm and you, it would create a desire for you to itch there but I'm not controlling your will. We can use something like a very charismatic leader can use something like the power of suggestion to create desires in people, but they're not controlling the will. They're influencing the will to act a certain way. Yeah. Influencing so, decision. So even the modern studies, and I'll cover this in part three. I mean, they, they do show that just by affecting the brain, you can really change aspects of the soul or affect aspects of the soul. And this is why I epistemically distinguish between the soul and the mind, because they're not actually controlling the mind. They're changing and modifying things in the soul. Mm -hmm. Okay. So um, let's move on to kind of one of the areas that I look at most frequently, because there's a lot of people that come forward with, with tales of their near-death experiences. Mm -hmm. And I don't generally take interest in near-death experiences that are just... Um, well, they just describe the contents as being kind of coming out of their body, seeing the tunnel, seeing dead relatives and all that, because to me, that's not as powerful evidentially. The ones I, I find interesting are the veridical perception, what's called veridical perception, which I'm sure you know about, which mm -hmm. is where they see things outside the body in different rooms or in a location they couldn't have been able to see from where their physical body was and bring back the information um, accurately. So I'm, I'm curious as to what your perception is of, of near-death experiences and how it relates to kind of... Um, your worldview on life after death yeah so I, I i there have been you know hundreds of reports from near-death experiences i do think the ones that are more interesting are the ones that have verifiable information uh so there was a study done back in like 1983 then it was repeated uh, about a decade ago by dr penny satori she's a she's a um she's a she's an uh, intensive uh, nurse, pra Swansea. nurse practitioner mm. yeah and so they did a the first one was done by Michael Sabom, and they basically, they interviewed cardiac arrest victims. They said, describe the cardiac arrest procedure. Well, the ones who had an out-of-body experience got it accurately. The ones who didn't made some major error along the way. Now, Sabom was criticized because not everyone in the control group was actually a cardiac arrest victim. But I, I think that was, you know, I don't think that was a major objection because his point was, 
focusing on the subject group, the, the near-death experience group, and how they were able to report it accurately compared to people who didn't experience it. Uh, so yeah, I think those are very interesting. Uh, so the whole near-death experience does relate to my overall worldview, especially when I'm talking about here about the difference between the soul and the mind. Because if uh, the soul is connected to the brain somehow, how does it go on after death? Uh, because people come back with memories, and so that's part of the soul. So obviously their soul goes with them. Luckily, I think uh, there's an aspect known as quantum biology that has actually come up about in the past decade. It actually helps explain a little bit of this. Is that, is that Hammeroff and Penrose? They're part of it. So they advocate one model called the, the, Orch, like the Orcho mm-hmm. R model. Orcho R, yeah. Yeah, I, I, th- I agree with them on some things, no doubt. I don't agree with them on everything. For example, they say quantum collapse is what consciousness is. And I don't agree with that. I think that would be just another, that's like a physicalist theory in disguise. It's just, and I don't think consciousness can reduce to some sort of physical uh, substance or some sort of physical process. And that's what they're doing. They're reducing consciousness to quantum collapse. So a physical process of some sort. Uh, But there are others who do advocate for what they are talking about as well. So they're not alone. Like, Anurban Bandigo Padhage, who is again another materialist and looks for quantum, uh, looks for aspects so that the uh, brain is also quantum. Uh, I take this one step further. So I follow the uh, neuroscientist John Eccles, who was also advocating for this you know, years ago. And he argues that this is actually evidence for an immaterial aspect of the mind. But the immaterial aspect of the mind, the immaterial mind, sorry, is also building a soul in the physical environment and then through quantum biology is able to continue the soul on after death. Mm-hmm. Yeah. It's, now that's it's, all, it's all very complicated and that's yeah, why I'm going to do yeah. a video explaining all that a little bit more in detail. Yeah. I, I haven't really had a look. I'm not a scientist. I'm not a philosopher. I don't understand all that, that language. So I've, I've had a brief look at, at things like the Orco R theory, but a lot of it goes completely over my head the technical, technical language and things like that. Um, yeah, but, it took, know, took base... me a while to understand the basic components of it because you have to understand uh, the, what's going on in the microtubules with uh, these electron clouds and whatnot, and it can be mm. very complicated. Mm. I know that the near-death phenomena, especially the veridical perception, has a big skeptical um, forum surrounding it. Um, mm. But there's a lot of it's it's anecdotal, based only, so it's not of any value and things like that. Yeah. I mean, so there have been the the control studies I mentioned like that. Uh, There is an interesting case. Have you ever heard of the case of Pam Reynolds, though? Yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I mean, that's a very interesting um, case. The the one that went against her was uh, Gerald Verley, wasn't it? Was it Gerald Verley? Right. And then also Sabom also addressed a lot of his objections and the Mm -hmm. objections have been met on and on and on. So my problem is when I read like a lot of the literature against near-death experiences, a lot of it is just sort of throwing shade and arguing from possibilities. Like recently reading objections to Sartori's work, it's all like, well, she could, you know, it could be possible that some of the nurses, uh, while she wasn't there, you know, imp- you know, looked at certain things or told the patient certain things, and therefore we can't trust them. And so it's a lot of it is just sort of like appealing to possibility and just throwing shade on the testimonial aspect of it, which they wouldn't do for other areas of aspect uh, in terms of researching this. So to give an example, uh, how do you know, and this is a, you know, kind of a, uh, kind of, you could maybe argue it's a little bit stretched, so maybe I should think of another one, but so how do you know antidepressant drugs work? That might be a better example than what I was thinking. Well, scientists give patients the drugs, they ask them their, uh, they ask them how they're feeling, 
and they go on the testimony of that. So they're relying on testimony. Okay, do we doubt their testimony just because they could be lying? Well, no, it's possible they're all lying, but I don't think we would doubt them on that. And if they have corroborating evidence to support it, like you know, two people are saying that the, the drug is having a positive effect, we tend to go, okay, well, that the corroborating evidence seems to support it. Well, we have the same basic evidence in near-death experiences. We have corroborating evidence, people confirming things they saw while they had an out-of-body experience. Uh, they're able to confirm things like the cardiac arrest procedures. I don't see any reason to put them on a higher uh, skeptical level other than metaphysical prejudice. Mm. And the, the common response to that is, well, um, what's that, that quote I hate? Um, extraordinary claims require extraordinary Yeah, that's evidence. it. I couldn't think of that bloody word. <laughs> yeah, My brain just went completely completely stopped for a minute. Yeah, and I, I hate that because, you know, I mean, yes, fair enough, the whole near-death experience phenomena and the explanations that we suggest as most plausible do suggest that there's some kind of mechanism out there and some kind of force that we don't understand yet. And so in a way, you're taking a leap beyond what we can measure. And so... Yeah. I mean, I always yeah. ask, what does that even mean? What does extraordinary mean? Extraordinary is a total subjective term. I mean, mm. cars would have been extraordinary to the ancient Egyptians. If you were trying to explain quantum tunneling in the, you know, the 19th century, they would say that it's extraordinary. Extraordinary is purely subjective. There's no way to measure it. That's not how we do yeah. science. That's not how we do history. This is just them, when the skeptic says that, they're just admitting their own subjective bias. Mm. So let's just follow the evidence where it leads and not just set these arbitrary personal standards on what's ordinary and what's extraordinary Let's just look at mm. the evidence i think it comes down to how that evidence is interpreted as well based on because everybody has presuppositions and they all have biases and right. um, so it's it depends on i suppose what what your fundamental belief is as to how that will fit i mean when you talk about extraordinary evidence to me you know there's nothing much more extraordinary than matter being able to produce consciousness <laughs> from from you know i mean what what is how does the brain work it's a bunch of atoms a, a hell of a lot of atoms granted that create your neuron cells um with a bunch of chemicals which are again just atoms which are flowing through them and an electrical charge which is electrons being passed through the atoms all of which is matter so if to me if if one atom and or one you know fundamental particle of an atom isn't conscious on its own i don't see how a group of those non-conscious atoms with an electrical charge passing through them can create see to me that's an a that's a very extraordinary claim and yet it seems to be taken as as, as a fundamental assumption in science which is just something that rupert sheldrake talks a lot about absolutely i mean there was a recent study put off i mean christoph coach was one of the authors and they argued that the neural correlates of consciousness are these specific hotspots in the brain however and people that are severely mentally handicapped or people that have like hydrocephalus, those hotspots aren't there and yet they're conscious. So, I mean, like, I, I don't want to tell people, like, the, the idea that we are getting close to explaining how the brain creates conscious is just ridiculous. When you actually start diving into the research, the researchers are clueless on how the brain can create consciousness. And it's often assumed. I mean, I just go back to that conversation between Daniel Dennett and Keith Ward. Anytime I hear him talking about consciousness, he basically is saying, I'm, I'm paraphrasing in a caricature fashion, but he's basically saying there's matter and then a miracle happens and then consciousness happens. I mean, he just is, it's constantly, materialists are constantly asserting this sort of miracle somewhere in nature that creates consciousness. And when you start getting into the literature, it gets even crazier because they'll deny that uh, they'll start saying, well, consciousness only appears in higher animals. Uh, okay, well, what about plants? Plants display 
enormous conscious behavior. They can be territorial. They've been shown to make decisions, uh, send out signals, uh, compete for space. Uh, they display enormous conscious behaviors. In fact, they're even aware of their own surroundings. They can recognize themselves as opposed to a clone of themselves as an as like a invading uh, an invading species of root to compete for root space. So I don't see how they're even close to explaining how consciousness. Mm -hmm. And in fact, I think the more they look into it, the more they actually reveal evidence the brain cannot create consciousness. Mm. I think for the general population of, of the lay people like, like us, most people just take it for granted that the scientists must understand it because they're making all these assertions. So they must have done years of study on the brain. They've come to the conclusion, so they must understand it. Whereas, you know, a lot of people I've spoken to, including research scientists and neuroscientists, will say no, they don't. Well, but it's assumed it. that they do. I mean, Christoph Koch, for example, admits that you know, there's still a long way to go in explaining mm. these types of things. I'm paraphrasing, of course, yeah. but I mm. mean, like, even he admits that, you know, when they're looking for the neural correlates of consciousness, they just can find these hotspots. And that's not really revealing, let alone explain the, into how the brain could create consciousness. Mm. I mean, consciousness is unlike anything else in existence. And you're just going to tell me that matter creates something entirely different in quality and properties from what it actually is. It just doesn't make sense. Mm -hmm. One of the arguments I see is that consciousness is essentially a, a definition, you know, a process, like um, we'd say that the digestive system creates digestion in the same way the neural functions create consciousness. And if, if we expect consciousness to continue after death, then we must ex expect digestion to continue after death. You know, they draw that comparison. Uh, yeah, I love that comparison because it's just like it's not even – I don't even. it shows they don't really even understand how difficult this is because you can fully explain digestion you can break it down to the, the motion of the atoms and have a full-blown equation to explain everything going on in there. There is no equation to explain how the brain creates consciousness. And again, it goes back to something like Yegon Kim has no, noted that the entire properties of consciousness are completely different from matter. Matter does not create things that lacks its material properties. Like when your digestion system you know, creates, you know, has digestion, the process of digestion it still has the physical properties from which it emerges from. That's not the same case with consciousness. Consciousness is unlike anything we see in the brain. And so for it, the brain to create consciousness, it would have to go through some sort of miraculous change to the point where it would be absurd to suggest that it could change in that way. So one of Yigon Kim's arguments is that material substances always create, or things that emerge from material substances always uh, retain that materialistic aspect of them. So, you know, like the examples you were giving with like the, the digestive system and digestion, there's still a material aspect there, but consciousness doesn't retain that aspects. And to explain this for any potential viewers, I mean, just think of something like, uh, like a, um, a desire you have or meaning, for example, let's say it's just a pattern in my brain. Like, let's say one of my uh, thoughts or one of my desires is just a pattern in my brain. Okay. And, you know, it just sort of emerges in my conscious experience, the same way music on a CD would emerge, you know, on a CD, it's just bumps and grooves. And when you put it in a CD player, music plays. Problem with that is that when it emerges like that, if that's all it is, it, a pattern in the brain, it becomes something entirely different. Like a belief can be about something a pattern 
cannot be about anything. It's just a pattern of symbols, like ink on a page. When I write out uh, ink on like a sentence on a page, it has meaning, but it only has meaning within a conscious mind. Other than that, it's just ink on a page. What turns it into something that's meaningful is it actually being experienced in consciousness. So why, if one of my beliefs is just a pattern in my brain, the moment it is experienced in consciousness, it now has a completely entirely different qualities. It has meaning. It can be about something. It lacks, it doesn't, it lacks its aspect of being a pattern that would be in the brain. Something is missing here. So somehow a pattern in the brain somehow magically when it goes into consciousness becomes something entirely different. It can be about something. It has meaning. It is no longer just some sort of arbitrary pattern. What gives it this sort of aspects? Well, consciousness. How is consciousness able to turn patterns in the brain, if that's all they are, into something entirely different from what we see? And beliefs would not carry over anything of the physical aspect of the brain. When you have a belief in your head, there's no connection to neuron synapses going on in your in your consciousness. There's no there's no pattern you're deciphering. You just simply have an irreducible belief in that sense. So you carry nothing for what it would be like in the physical brain. And so this is why there is a hard problem of consciousness, despite how much Daniel Dennett wants to deny it. <laughs> yeah. I mean, it's, it's, again, I think a lot of people just take for granted that the neuroscientists and the neurosurgeons must understand how it works. And it's a reasonable thing to, to think with the confidence of which this kind of thing is put out there. But again, I think without the necessity to kind of look into it a bit further, you'd never really worry about it. I mean, well, yeah, the, the only... I mean, also think of something like this. Have you heard of a frontotemporal disorder, for example? Yes. Yeah, it's a very interesting uh, thing where people uh, will have frontotemporal disorder and they'll lose aspects of their soul. However, in some rare cases of frontotemporal disorder, people do lose aspects of their personality, but then sometimes they can literally gain whole new abilities, whole new information, knowledge, and whatnot. So sometimes brain damage actually unlocks uh, so, uh, minds to sort of uh, experience and process information in new ways. Yeah. Mm. So I'm trying to uh, pull up some examples here, but I mean, you know, well, like I've, the example. It's a, a good example. Yeah, it's a good example of that. That um, Doctor Eben Alexander. Do you know him? Yeah, yeah, he had that near-death experience. Yeah, yeah that's right. I uh, had a chat with him, and he, he brought up some good good points about the. Um, the relationship between clarity of consciousness and the brain state, because of course he had bacterial meningitis, which completely shut down his neocortex. And he was saying that through studies of fMRI and things like that, where they paint um, certain chemicals to, to show the chemical function of the brain, they showed that in cases where um, the fMRI showed the least activity, the clarity of experience was, high, was heightened. So it seems that lower brain functions equals more clear experience which would make sense um on my worldview where uh, the brain filters consciousness as opposed to um creates it kind of like yeah, a that's, the, idea. that's yeah. the idealist position so yeah yeah i mean so just maybe take I'm the, you know, an idealist then yeah <laughs> <I don't know. laughs> very, very at least very similar to it mm. but i mean take uh the movie rain man that was mm -hmm. based on a real 57 year old patient who and I quote, memorized over 6,000 books and had an encyclopedic knowledge of geography, music, literature, history, sports, and nine other areas of expertise. He 
He can name all the U.S. area codes and major city zip codes. He also has memorized the maps in the front of telephone books. He can tell you precisely how to get from one U.S. city to another and then how to get around in that city street by street. He also has a calendar calculating abilities and more recently, advanced musical talent talents have even surfaced. Of unique interest is his ability to read extremely rapidly, simultaneously scanning one page with the left eye and the other page with the right eye. However, magnetic resonant imaging shows the absence of a corpus col uh, colossum along with other substantial central nervous system CNS damage. So this guy has several examples of brain damage and nervous uh, system damage. And yet for somehow he has unlocked these genius levels mm -hmm. abilities. How's that possible? As if he, almost as if he has access to more than the standard. Yeah. Yeah. So there's a, yeah. Yeah. When materialists bring up brain damage, sometimes they end up just shooting themselves in the foot. Hmm. Another good example of that is, uh, I'm sure you know of the phenomenon of terminal lucidity. Yeah, that's also interesting. There's a lot less cases of that from what I found. Out. Mm. I, I thought that, but I spoke with um, a... I'm trying to think who it was. She was a palliative, palliative care nurse who'd been with many dying people. And I think Jan Holden as well mentioned that it's actually a lot more common than you'd think. Um, there are quite a few cases, but maybe a f maybe few documented cases. Yeah, there's definitely a few documented. Yeah. I mean, I think terminal lucidity is one of the strongest evidences that there is some kind of disconnection between consciousness and the brain. And, you know, paired with, as we say, that um, it seems that through experimental fMRI studies that lower brain function seems to account for higher co higher yeah. levels of awareness. Um put that together with things like the out-of-body experience, veridical perception, and terminal lucidity, and we, I think that's quite a strong evidence base to suggest that there's something, at least, that we don't understand. Yeah. But the, problem, the problem I run into a lot in, in a lot of groups and forums is, well, the problem is science, hard science, relies on being able to explain something, and because we don't have a mechanism, we can't, therefore, uh, accept that there is something separate from the brain because we don't know what that is. And my argument to that is we don't need to explain. The fact is it this thing, this phenomena happens and it shouldn't in our current paradigm. Right. But because it can't be explained, they seem to be able to say, well, we, we don't need to pay attention to that until you can tell me how it happens. To me, that seems a bit Well, you're, you hit the nail on the head. I mean, that's just assuming the conclusion they want. If there's any data that doesn't fit with the conclusion they already have, they just ignore it. Or they say, well, we'll explain that in the future. Obviously, How do we know? Well, it will be explained in the future. We already know our worldview is the correct worldview. So any data that is not consistent with that worldview, it's either a misunderstanding or will just be explained in the future. And how do we know that? Well, because we already know our worldview is true. Hmm. It's just circular reasoning. They assume the conclusion they yeah. want, and they just ignore any data that contradicts that. This is why sometimes I'll, I'll just give up talking to some of these people when I'm arguing for God's existence or for the uh, an idealist position because they just dismiss any data that doesn't fit with their worldview. And they just, instead of actually offering a better explanation of that data, and that just reinforces my belief that their worldview is not a, a consistent or not a, a worldview that has a complete picture of, has a complete picture of reality. Uh, and so all the data is sort of pushing me away from them because they can't explain it. They just, you know, hand wave it away and that doesn't work. And so, you know, this is why I'm still a theist after debating atheists for so long. This is one of the reasons uh, is because my biggest thing is like when it comes to 
idealism or theism. I'm like, here's my data. I'm going to lay out my data, and I'm going to offer an explanation of this data. The same thing scientists do. The same thing historians do. The same thing philosophers do. Everyone does. I'm going to offer the data. Here's the best explanation. If it's wrong, do what they do in science. Offer a better explanation that accounts for all the data and can explain it in a much simpler uh, fashion. Well, they never do that. And so hmm. I'm just almost like, all right, then I guess I'm just going to keep saying this is the best explanation. Yeah. I think the, the, the most frequent thing that I see against any explanation we make is that it, it, we're making it unfalsifiable. So at that point, it's not science because it I mean, can't, you can't a, I mean, prove a negative and things like that. Even Michael Shermer admits there are aspects of science that are unfalsifiable. And he admits one of those aspects is the, the neuroscience around consciousness. So there are aspects of science that are not falsifiable. I mean, there are many physicists who hold to the many worlds interpretation. Currently, that's not falsifiable in a strong sense because there's no way to test it to, uh, over other interpretations. Same mm -hmm. with Bohmian mechanics. Uh, economics is another non-falsifiable aspect of science. There are many thing, theories in economics that are hard to test and play out. You can't really falsify them because in, in a pragmatic sense, in reality, how they play out is a lot more complicated. So there's always caveats you can use to dismiss you know, objections and whatnot. But I mean, the, 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 a lot of the stuff surrounding neuroscience, the physicalist models in there are not falsifiable. So to assume... Mm -hmm that has to be falsifiable to be science just means you don't understand science. Mm. What's your opinion then on, on things like, um, which is another common challenge to the brain filter separate soul kind of question is um, the effect of anesthetics and well, general anesthetics. Oh yeah. This will come up in part three extensively because um, if, if so, you want to leave it for that, then you don't have to go into it. No, I'm, but, I'm happy to talk about it. So there've been studies that have been, done on anesthetics and they have argued that uh, in 60% of cases, people are still having some sort of conscious like states that they're reporting. So it doesn't seem that anesthetics or other aspects are shutting off consciousness in a sense. They're just sort of disconnecting the mind from the ability to use its brain temporarily. Uh, a good example can be seen like, so let's say you wake up in the morning and you don't remember any dream. Okay. You're going to assume you were unconscious all night. Let's say you go about your day and halfway through the day, something hits your memory you see something it reminds you mm -hmm. wait i did have a dream last night so wait a minute you were conscious for part of the night okay so sometimes people dream and they don't remember it sometimes people are unconscious and they don't remember everything that happened and that would make sense if the brain's ability to form memories has been turned off that doesn't mm -hmm. mean your consciousness goes away and there have been studies that done on this which i'll mention in part three which will be out early august mm -hmm. that show this that consciousness doesn't really go away what just happens is just the same thing you get from typical mm. drug effects. You just uh, impair um, their people's inhibitions or people's ability to operate normally in reality. Hmm. I'd love to have a look at them studies if, if you'd be willing to send them through to me. Yeah, yeah I'll, I mean, I'll send you the uh, titles. I need to pull mm -hmm. them up, but yeah. Mm. That's another question, isn't it? Memory. Um, we, we can see that memory has correlations in the brain as mem new memories are formed, new pathways are formed. Um, and so it's assumed that con uh, mem conscious, that memory is stored in the brain, although that would be questioned when we have things like the near-death experience, including right. vertical perception, in which memory is also available. Well, um, here, just, here's, a, yeah. here's some of the studies I can give you really quick. Mm -hmm. uh, so there's one 
titled uh, Consciousness Lost and Found Subjective Experiences in an Unresponsive State. Uh, and that, and so in there they say after regaining responsiveness, participants recalled subjective experience in almost 60% of sessions. There's another study called Acceleration Induced Loss of Consciousness, which also talks about these same ideas. There's another one called Does Consciousness Disappear in Dreamless Sleep? Uh, and so that's another interesting study. But yeah, these cover anesthetic induced states as well. I believe like the first one I mentioned does. Great. I mean, I think another thing for that I've always wondered about anesthetics is we know that a lot of the cocktail of drugs they use include very, very strong um, amnesic properties for the mm -hmm. sole purpose so that you don't remember any conscious experience you had. Um, which, again, I'm not sure how anesthetic, um, amnesic drugs work to block memories um, and how that relates to the emergence question. But it would make sense that if there was any experience during um, anesthesia, those amnesic drugs would be preventing the memory of that, but that doesn't necessarily mean that they didn't happen. Right. And that's, again, that would also explain why many people don't or report not having a near-death experience in cardiac arrest and things like that. Oh we yeah, don't know there's if they did and then, on that as well. Yeah, yeah. So there's a, there's a lot around that that can be put taken into account. Yeah, so what were you saying about the uh, filtering thing again? You, you're going on before I cut you off. Was I? Oh, I can't remember. It wouldn't have, wouldn't have been relevant, or I would have remembered. Okay. Well, um, I would just say I was going to say for how I would explain the idealist position on the filtering thing is that like. Uh, the brain is sort of like the extrinsic appearance of what a conscious agent looks like in physical reality. Mm -hmm. So like your brain, so you're a conscious agent and if you're going to appear in a physical reality, well, you have to look like something that would be your brain and your nervous system. That's what you appear as, as a conscious agent. And you could extend it to the whole body. It's just sort of like the avatar, or the extrinsic appearance of a conscious agent. So Bernardo philosopher of mine, Bernardo Castro puts it like this. It's like the body the brain and the body is the third person experience of what a first person experience looks like in a physical reality. Hmm. Sounds a lot like what, what um, the, the well-known guy, Rupert, uh, Rupert Sheldrake, um, Rupert Spira says about, um, do you know Rupert Spira? Not familiar with him now. He, he's, he's worth looking at. He's very, he seems very awake to this sort of thing and of consciousness and, I don't know if he had a, a spiritual experience or something, but he's very matter of fact on this sort of thing. And he says the same thing. It's the brain is kind of what consciousness looks like from the from the perspective of physical reality. So that sounds right. very similar to that. Um, right, and it's it's exactly yeah. why we'll never find consciousness in the brain for the same reason that when you look at your computer screen and you see an icon for an app, you're not going to be able to explain the code from just looking at the extrinsic appearance of the app so what's your opinion then from your christian um point of view what do you think is our experience after physical death i mean do you subscribe to the to the standard christian model that we um enter a period of unconsciousness until the resurrection and then we're physically resurrected or do you see and then in, in which sense sorry we're, we're then sent to heaven or hell respectively no, so what I think is that there is, um, N.T. Wright talks about how biblical authors, specifically Paul, believes there is a period in between the resurrection where we're still these conscious minds and we are just waiting to get a body again. So your soul sort of continues on after death. My basic view is that is that the information of the soul is sort of like, 
so to speak, is sort of like deep within the layers of the brain. And so the brain is like a pathway to sort of access that information. Upon death, uh, the, the information of the soul becomes disconnected from the brain. But however, it's still held together by quantum entanglement and sort of can continue on after death. So you have some sort of like ghostly existence for all that information of the soul is still connected to the conscious mind that can continue on and continue, continue to operate. With self-awareness. So, self-awareness, yeah, because you're still a mind and you still have access to the information of the soul. And so my basic view is that you would have to sort of, now this is all speculative, of course, because I've not been there, but mm. my basic well, view no, is Anything that, on this subject is going to be speculative, <laughs> isn't it? Exactly. Until we're dead. Exactly. So my basic view is that that information would need to sort of entangle with something uh, eventually or the way it would slowly dissipate and disintegrate over time. And I would call, if it, if it does that, I'd call that hell an eventual annihilationalism. So I don't believe in necessarily an eternal hell. I think it could be just slow and then annihilationism. So that information of the soul slowly annihilates until it's out of existence. However, if you're a Christian or if you believe in God, uh, you could sort of re-entangle with a, a more fundamental mind, more fundamental, uh, consciousness in that sense that allows it to persist and go on until you get your body back so that's generally my view is that when a christian dies they entangle with christ uh, paul says that we cleave to his spirit or that we become one with his spirit uh that's talked about in first corinthians and second corinthians uh, and then we are with christ until the resurrection happens so in a sense christ has already resurrected he has a body we can entangle with him and his body because he's also god and then we sort of wait there until we have our physical bodies back. Now, again, that's all speculative, but that's just an idea I was mm. thinking about. <laughs> I mean, I've never read the Bible. I've, I've never studied Christianity. I was brought up in a, in a Christian school, and I think it was forced on me that much that I kind of wanted to get rid of, get rid of it. Mm. What, one of the common questions coming, you mentioned that we still retain self-awareness uh, of, of the memories and all that after our death, and we still have kind of a similar would you say we would have a similar kind of sen uh, system of senses as in sight, sound? Yeah, because, so that's a, yeah. that's an interesting way to look at it. And that's another interesting thing is that how would you have sight without your eyes? Because Exactly. Mm, well, the one the thing you have to remember is that how we are experiencing the physical world now is through a certain way. Uh, we have, um, on the idealist view, consciousness has been sort of... Um, contained and focused in a certain way to experience reality in this way. Uh, however, uh, the soul, you know, as we are sort of building souls, we may retain the ability to sort of like um, intrinsically still uh, process and accept information the way we would have had in the body. So it's sort of like the body is sort of like our training wheels. And once we get disconnected from that, it's like we lose the training wheels, but we can still retain certain processes that would mimic how we were obtaining information from the eyes or the ears. And that could continue on with aspects within the soul. So the soul will not just be your memories or your, your memories, desires, emotions, thoughts. It could also be the processes, a mimic or a simulated version of the processes we use to obtain uh, those aspects that built the soul. So perhaps it sort of is running sort of like these, um, if you know Photoshop, sometimes you can run a script in Photoshop to sort of do the thing for you. Perhaps we the soul will continue on with certain scripts to sort of reobtain information. And secondly, I also don't think we're going to obviously be experiencing reality the same way. I think we will obviously be disconnected from the body. We will not be able to see people who are still alive uh, the way we see them now. 
uh, will have to sort of unite to Christ or unite in, to God in some sort of uh, different way. And of course, we'll be on a different plane of existence. So that's the general road I would take on that road is that there could also be these sort of scripts within our soul to allow us to obtain the information. We hear similar things in um, things like astral projection and, and out-of-body experiences a lot from people such as Robert Monroe, Graham Nichols and folks like that who kind of talk about an etheric body which would in a way kind of mimic your um, idea of there's a simulated sensor of a body of sight sound and um, they say that they leave their physical body in this etheric or subtle body which they can then use to navigate the environment that they're in which is similar to the physical but slightly different in the sense that the mind is much more um, able to the environment is much more liquid and the mind is able to interpret or to influence what goes on you know you think of a purple spotted dragon and there's a purple spotted dragon running up to you you know that sort of thing right um so i wonder if if that's a similar environment to to what what you're talking about and another thing sorry just before is before i forget you were saying about merging with god or merging with christ you hear a lot in near-death experience of a sense of oneness and merging with the higher self mm-hmm. i wonder if that's kind of a similar thing because do you stick do you have the belief that god is a separate entity or do you think that we're all kind of part of of what we'd call god or so one uh, yes and no that's a that's a very long uh subject that goes back in christian tradition probably to even before christianity with philo of alexandria uh it's talking about the imminence of god and the transcendence of god how can god both be imminent and transcendent and paula talks about how we unite to god but god is still transcendent beyond us so what comes up in a lot of the Christian literature is something called the energy essence distinction, which is that God is solely transcendent and unique in his essence, but he has also these energies for which we are united with him in there. And so, yeah, I think we are united to God in that, in that sense of an energy, but I don't think we will ever be part of his transcendent essence. I think that's the Trinity. That's where the essence of God is, and we can never unite to that. I also would say that God in his essence is timeless as well. So since we are beings that are contingent upon time, we could never be united to that. So I would refer people to the long Christian tradition on debating and going back on the energy essence distinction, or as it's referred to in Protestant circles, the transcendence versus the imminence of God. Hmm. Have you ever read um, Michael Newton's books? I Journey of Souls, so. Destiny of Souls. He was maybe actually it sounds familiar. Yeah. Maybe I did. He was I a. Um, I don't think he's around anymore. He was a past life regressionist who started off as just a, a, um, a hypnotherapist and started looking at past lives and eventually looked at life between lives. And he wrote down a lot of uh, memoirs of his experiences and his patients and what they were saying, um, which all came out incredibly consistent. And their main idea was that at death and um, depending on what we've learned and how we've grown and how many lifetimes we've had on earth um we'll get to reincarnation in a minute because i'd like to hear your idea on that mm-hmm. but um depending on how many lives we've had and how we've grown we have different energies old souls they call it young souls you know um and the overall goal of every soul is to become one with as we'd say god or source or oneness to attain that level of awareness you work through you know becoming a guide then becoming a, an angel and then becoming 
whatever else we don't know before eventually aiming to merge with the perfect sense of being God. Mm. Yeah, I don't know if I've read his stuff. It's been a while if I have. Mm. I may have read it back when I was... may have read it last decade, if it Mm. brings any It is is worth reading. I mean, the only thing you could say is that, well, it's hypnotherapy, so you're going to be working on suggestions of of what he's putting into the patients. But the, the interesting thing is the consistency amongst thousands of cases... Um, but it's certainly worth a read if, if you if you get round to it. Um, so, yeah, what, what, yeah, what do you think on works like um, Ian Stevenson and, and the DOPS Division of Perceptual Studies on reincarnation? So, I've not read them. I have read uh, Dr. Bruce uh, uh, Grayson on them on some of those cases. Uh, and so, there's a couple of things I would say on those. One, I'm skeptical of a lot of reincarnation experiences. Uh, uh, because what I hear from a lot of people, these are just you know anecdotal cases, is that I remember talking to someone on Facebook years ago. He remembers in his past life he was a knight, and before that he was a king, and before that he was um, he was a he was a pirate. And I'm like, boy, you got to live all the interesting lives, whereas most people who have been alive have been farmers. <laughs> I'm sorry. Yeah, it's like how come there's no re you know reincarnation experiences of people just being a farmer or a peasant mm, or just mm, some sort of mm. nomad who dies at, yeah. you know, age six because of some horrible disease. You know, mm. that's what seems most people lived in poverty. So why are all the near death or the uh, reincarnation experiences, uh, a a good really point. interesting past mm. lives. Mm. Now Grayson does actually bring up cases in the far East where people have, uh, reincarnated experiences where they've lived, you know, a pretty normal life in their past life. And they also have like some distinguishing mark uh, from their past life. Like maybe they had their head cut off and they have like a, uh, like they were born with a birthmark of like a line, like around their neck kind of thing. He brings up interesting cases like that. A uh, couple things I could say about that. Uh, one, I don't necessarily believe in reincarnation right now, but I'm, I'm open to the evidence because I feel like I have to be, if I'm going to be as unbiased as I possibly can. I do remember there is, um, a book called My Descent into Death by I got written by a guy named Howard Storm, who was an atheist, had a near-death experience, and became a Christian. And he says at one point in the book that uh, when he was talking to Christ, that Christ said somebody could come back to this world in a second life if they request it. So I guess it's possible on a Christian worldview. I don't think reincarnation is entirely incompatible with Christianity, only on the caveat that it doesn't, it's not like a necessity. It, it, it's only like a possibility. It, in special that circumstances. Is, that is the common experience is that the reincarnation is is through choice um yeah. whether it be for for learning purposes you know um if we came to earth we're supposed to learn a lesson um but didn't for whatever reason if we committed suicide before um for that lesson was learned we have the choice to come back and it goes into karma and things like this which are, is confusing in, in and of itself because it's very misunderstood um, but you know, karmically, that lesson must be learned. So whether we do that through a second life or through continued spiritual existence, yeah. Um, but yeah, the, the common experience is it's always a choice pushed by the guides and by the angels or, or whoever. Yeah, I mean, my knee-jerk reaction when I hear reincarnation is to just immediately reject it because it's inconsistent with my worldview. Of course, yeah. But I mean, from dealing with atheists and materialists so much, I don't want to be like that. So I'm <laughs> trying to be open to the evidence. I'm saying, well, mm. there are some interesting cases here that might have some weight to it. So I want to try to gravitate towards that mindset. Uh, the other way you could possibly explain reincarnation is not so much uh, this idea that someone has actually been reincarnated, but maybe there are shared memories. 
Uh, so there have been some cases where some people feel like they are uh, sharing memories, um, you know, this idea of people um, uh, sort of almost, you know, being so interconnected, they almost share, you know, memories or lives or thoughts with each other because they're just so connected or whatnot. Um, there could be possibly a case that somehow, because the soul is, I would argue, is a quantum, um, it's a quantum process, uh, that somehow maybe the memories of your soul could become entangled with someone else's, especially after death. Maybe perhaps you could somehow, the, the soul could leave the body and somehow uh, through whatever process, I mean, obviously this is speculative, but somehow accidentally sort of like entangle with another soul that's sort of coming into existence. But again, this is all speculative, but those are two different possible theories that I would take on reincarnation. I will admit that that's not been my main area of study. I've been focusing more on near-death experiences because I think the evidence for them is a little bit better than reincarnation. A lot of the reincarnation stuff uh, is, you know, we don't really see it happening a lot in the West. It seems to, now there are some cases, but most of it seems to happen in the Far East where people are expecting it. Uh, Near-death experiences seem to be more of a global phenomenon, so they're happening everywhere. Um, in fact, there have even been some studies done on near-death near near experiences where 82% of respondents who had one were convinced there was life after death. So not only is it global, it seems to have actual uh, entire worldview changes on people in that sense. So I think the data for near-death is better than reincarnation. Hmm. I'd agree. What, what, what do you say to those that would say, well, by definition, they were near death, they weren't dead. See, my argument to that is that's fair enough, but there are cases where we can see the brain state, where the EEG is flat. And oh, yeah, yes, I mean, we, know, we, we know there's residual brain activity, even if the EEG shows flat, yes, there is electronic activity going on, but well, nowhere a, near to the level that is needed well, for consciousness. Well, here's an interesting argument to bring about against them, is that if, I mean, when people report near-death experiences, they report them as more real than real. Like, they're not dreams. They're not, like, delusions. They're saying that what I experience is more real than the current world. If such little brain activity is needed to generate experiences, why the big brain with all the brain activity now? If we don't need all this brain activity to generate experiences, and it could just happen on some sort of deep, underlying, undetectable levels, then why did we evolve with these brains that are just unnecessary? Uh, it doesn't make sense in that regard that if we can generate realistic experiences oh, that are visual, that have out of body, that are able to mm. see things in the room, that yeah. you know, and not, not even experience. not even realistic, but hyper realistic. Yeah. Why do we mm. need this large brain as it is for day to day activities? If we can generate an out of body experience and see things in the room around like what I'm in right now, without this the massive brain activity going on now, that doesn't seem right. There seems to be some sort of ad hoc explanation is saying that some sort of deeper brain activity is creating these experiences because if that was the case we wouldn't need all the brain activity now to generate the experiences we're having now at the current room let alone one in an out-of-body experience and yeah there aren't been cases where i mean like the case of pam reynolds where you know they drained the blood from her brain she was dead by anyone yeah, and frozen team. frozen yeah they drained mm. her blood they they that did increase her body temperature she was clinically dead Okay, mm. you can't get around a case like that or other, other and, similar yeah. cases as well. As you say, not just that, but her eyes taped. She had the 100 decibel sounds frequently in her ear. And I've checked with um, Jan Holden. It was constant in her ear. Not A lot of people say, well, she could have had, there could have been gaps um, in the in the sound where she could have heard conversation. No, it was constant. Yeah. The only thing you can say is, well, the conversation she heard was before or after. 
her brain was ramping up and the things were put in her ears. Which, yeah, I mean, if you're going to go that far, you could claim all sorts of nonsense, you know. Right. Just by looking at the... just I don't understand why people have this, seem to struggle with just looking at the data and following it. Well, I mean, wherever I mean it seems to at, go. Look at the, what you just said. I mean, they were just coming up with some sort of ad hoc way to dismiss it. Like, maybe she heard something during it. I mean, this is what you get with a lot of materialists with near-death experiences, is just throw shade on the testimony, throw shade on the reports, find any possible explanation to get around it, and then... Because, you know, it's not consistent with materialism, so it's got to be wrong somehow. And I'll just find any po- – if I can find any possibility, that means I'm right. And that's generally the reasoning you get. Yeah, probability is not the same as poss- – pro- pro- possibility is not the same as probability. Right. You know, we're not looking at what's possible. We're looking at what's the most probable based on the evidence that we've got. That's what science is, surely. And unfortunately, you know, the data does seem to suggest that our – at least – our current understanding of neurophysiology doesn't seem to fit the data or certainly doesn't fit the data unless you really, really clutch at straws and right. add these ad hoc reasonings. So I think, you know, and it's it's miraculous to me, talking about extraordinary things, that this data is here to such a level, but it's still not seriously considered. Yeah, well, they'll dismiss that data, but then again, they'll know the brain creates consciousness because somehow some miracle along mm. the way happened. I mean, so yeah, but that's not an extraordinary claim. Apparently. Not at all, no. But ours yeah. are, you know. So. Yeah, but it's just not ideal because we're never going to grow forward with the data that's available. Correct. Yeah, and I, I completely agree. And so, and on, on a lot of ways, I feel like materialism or physicalism is sort of holding us back from better understanding consciousness in the brain because they're, you know, they're it. it what they're trying to do to, to say the brain create co- creates consciousness, they're trying to construct an eye out of colors. I mean, eyes experience colors, brain. I mean, everything we experience happens in consciousness. So how can you build consciousness out of things that are always experiencing consciousness? It feels like, it feels like the brain, there's something experiencing consciousness cannot construct consciousness itself. Consciousness seems to be something beyond the physical entirely. And the physical is always experiencing consciousness. How are you going to construct the brain out of things which are always experienced or which are elements uh, of consciousness itself? It seems to be in some sort of huge epistemic gap there. Hmm. And I mean, we can't discount that, of course, you know, materialistic experience or materialistic aspects of, of life are a huge, huge part of it and currently the only parts we can measure. But to then restrict it to say that that's because that's the only thing we can measure, that's all that exists especially right. as we say now that there's data that question that to be oh, stuck yeah. in that belief is going to be very very restrictive to science and you know people talk about science they say that you don't understand science because you believe all this sort of stuff and i'm thinking you know well science isn't a set thing it's not a set principle it, it's it's an exploration of, of life wherever it takes you and we don't know you know the methods that are used we have to assume that those methods are correct which they are for materialism but we can't then base everything on that one method because there may be things outside that method that it doesn't work for. Mm-hmm. I would say that the, the one way to convince me the brain creates consciousness would be, uh, it's not doable now, but it could be in the future, is that download a brain onto a computer and if there's still an agent living in some sort of computer world and they're still conscious, then I might be convinced that somehow the brain is creating consciousness because you could just transfer it to another material substrate. Mm-hmm. But I don't think or that will happen. Or if an, an AI brain, or not an AI, but an actual uh, intelligent 
computer system was able to be developed with its own self-consciousness demonstrably so would that then be evidence do you think towards emergence possibly um but i'm also aware of you know johnny uh, john sears chinese room argument which sort of puts some that one. Yeah. problems on that um i would also say yeah, i believe the the last i remember calculating is that the brain is supposed to be able to process or it has like 2.5 petabytes analogously like if you were going to if to get the same computing power you'd have a brain uh, on a computer, it'd have to be like 2.5 petabytes. Well, we have entire computer systems that are running on exobytes and they don't look any more conscious. I mean, they don't <laughs> no, act any more no. conscious. So I don't think the more data or more processing power, you're going to get to something that's conscious because we've surpassed the brain's computing or storage pe- capacity and it doesn't become conscious. I suppose then it's all down to how it's circuited and how what information is fed to it and that sort of thing. But again, you, again, you can go back to the Chinese room argument oh yeah so, um no, another thing i wanted to ask you about which is often controversial amongst those who follow religion at least fundamentally is um, mediumship and evidential mediumship especially none of the not talking about another you know, tv mediums who charge 850 dollars for a te- half an hour telephone reading because that's anything entertainment based I, I i try to ignore but you know these mediums that will charge nothing or the experimental mediums of do you know the winbridge institute julie byshaw mm-hmm yeah, I've heard of her, yeah. her and Gary Schwartz and experiments like that on evidential mediumship who do seem to bring back statistically relevant um, and we can go into statistics on different paranormal things as well because that's all interesting but what's your opinion on, on mediumship and well, do you think it has any evidential value? Well I mean I am a Christian so I do believe there are other spirits at work I mean if the evidence shows that mediums are actually talking to other beings immaterial beings I'd be like well yeah I mean, I wouldn't doubt that at all. I mean, that could entirely be possible. Uh, it is actually on my list to read. I just haven't gotten there yet. But yeah, I do remember reading some things on that. I just haven't had a chance to get back to it to circle around on it. But I mean, the, what, what, the way the Christians would interpret that is like, well, yeah, they're probably just talking to demons. Yeah. Yeah. That's kind of the common thing you see. Um, and, you know, f- yeah, f- fair enough with that with that background um, belief, although the question comes, of course, as you rightly say, are these people talking to um, the demons, or are they talking to who they actually are supposed to be? Because a lot of the information that's received is known only between the sitter and the the non-discarnate um, relative. You know, mm-hmm. like something very secret between only the two of them that they can relay, and that kind of bring begs the question: a common thing is, is it? actual mediumship or is it some sort of psi telekinetic connection between um the medium and the sitter which is a, is a question regardless it's still going to be classed as paranormal but that is um questioned but i know julie byshell's experiments involved double triple quadruple blind studies where nobody had a basically no one had a clue what the hell was going on um but they still received very significant evidential results that they were talking with discarnate people who they were saying they were connected to again it's it's all dismissed as, as nonsense pseudoscience and woo which is a word that i can't stand um oh, i love it I, I love when they say woo because it just knows i'm winning the argument because that's all they can do yeah they always seem to relate that back to quantum physics and and deepak chopra don't they mm-hmm. woo oh yeah. yeah just tells me i'm winning the argument and they have to do that <laughs> yeah what was it you call it in philosophy ad hominem Mm-hmm. Yeah. Mm. 
be, I will study that more. I'm also going to look more into the whole research on DMT beings as well and try to nail down some of that because I know uh, I've read one book and then I want to read a couple more. So I'm going to look mm-hmm. more into a lot of that stuff soon. Dimethyltryptamine, yeah. It's an interesting one that it's the, the question on all those sort of drugs is there's two possibilities. Does it A, affect the brain so that the consciousness is changed or does it B, open the receptivity of the brain to receive more information? Right. And that's obviously the first is always, yeah, the first is always favoured, but to me the evidence can support both and it's just which belief you hold initially. It'll, it, there's some interesting data I may have found that may support the latter, but I just need to mm. read it all and make sure um, before I start publishing videos on it so <laughs> mm. so what's, what's your idea on the um something that i couldn't understand or i couldn't kind of perceptualize in christianity traditional christianity is that if you don't believe literally that jesus christ rose from the dead and, and was killed for your sins regardless of how good a person you are from the humanistic morality point of view you're going to get sent to hell for eternity and regardless of what acts you do if you're a negative you act negatively to what anybody would consider negative, but you believe in Jesus and you love God and all that, then you get put to heaven. I could never understand that. What's your opinion on that kind of thing? Um, it's a complicated issue. I probably don't have time to go into it in here, but I did a whole video called Does God Send People to Hell? Where I explained that a little more in depth. And my basic argument is God doesn't send anyone into hell. The doors from hell are locked from the inside. And as Dallas Willard said, God will let anyone into heaven who can stomach it. Hmm. So do you think hell is, is, as it's described, a literal hellfire, or do you think it's a state of mind? or a, It's more of a, a state of mind because Christ describes hell as both a literal fire and an outer darkness. So it's probably metaphorical language to refer to like an outer darkness. It's not, mm-hmm. it, it, it can't both be a darkness and a fire at the same time. Mm. So also yeah. there's no bodies there how do you burn something that's not a body it's the fire is just a metaphor for yeah it. exactly that was something i never understood is if you're in this pain and torment that you're you're screaming for the rest of eternity but you've got no body to sense pain right how does that make you know yeah yeah well check out the and, video i did i go into it in oh, more well. depth and i explain mm. it i mean the common experience of, of near-death experiences and, and those that are channeled or medium ship coming through is that um, you know the life review I'm sure you do mm-hmm. where you um, go through panoramically every experience you've ever had and uh, experience it from your side and the person the other person that was affected by a decision and so a lot of them say that that's kind of what you consider hell if you've been if you've done so much so much harmful stuff on earth the life review process is going to be you know imagine what hitler must be going through <laughs> that to anybody that would be hell mm-hmm. um, and and heaven is kind of it's not eternal but heaven is kind of after after that when it comes back to all this all one loving nothing but love kind of and it, it doesn't seem to be a, a judgment from a god or something it's a self-judgment kind of experience um so i wonder what's your take on that kind of thing um, i mean yeah i, I base my basically view on hell it's not punishment inflicted upon god it's a punishment inflicted upon by this the self i mean i don't i think that's actually described in the bible but more it's just that people want to take the visual graphic scenes and run wild with it but if you get a little bit more depth into theology you kind of see that there 